1 Peter chapter 2 in our Bibles this morning. What a powerful song. That song ought to lead us to some introspection to see if we can actually say those words, you know. Um, is Jesus Christ my hope alone? And am I willing to give up everything to honor Christ and to magnify him? Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. I do want to make mention of a couple of things. Phil Pritchard did uh, ask for there to be an ushers meeting tonight following the evening service. So if you're an usher... Please be there for that meeting. He'll have more details about that. And also, I do want to ask you to continue to be in prayer for little Miles down in Tennessee. Um, The Scots are home from Tennessee. Of course, they were down there uh, last uh, Sunday and a few days this week. But do be in prayer for Miles and uh, for his parents, Gus, and uh, his mom, Lindsay. Uh, So, Miles, they're weaning him off things. His little body is getting stronger. They're running all kinds of tests on him. They have moved him into a different location so that mom and dad can be close to him and be able to see him and hold him and things like that. But uh, still, there are some unknowns. And uh, those things, sometimes the unknown is worse than reality in our minds. So uh, be in prayer for Lindsay. Be in prayer for Gus as well as uh, Gus's parents, and then, of course, the Scots as well. So whole family going through this time, and it is a trial, and there's joy involved, and then there's a lot of questions. So be in prayer for them, I think, too, especially of Gus and Lindsay, their first child, and um, be in prayer for them, okay? Pray that, that God will show himself mighty in their lives and uh, meet their needs, and that they'll be willing to allow the Lord to meet their personal needs. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're at as we work our way through. Um, God wants us to point people to Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Many of us have a strong desire for that to happen. The song we just heard had a lot to do with that. Um, What we long for, what we desire most. Um, Do we want Christ to be magnified most in our lives or there are there are our comforts do they rise to the surface do our hobbies rise to the surface do our desires take precedent in our thinking and in our lives over that Christ would be magnified and Christ would be glorified these believers that peter is writing to in first peter were suffering uh, they were going through trials um, hardships grief anxiety to the max. Um, And in chapter 2, in verse number 12, you look there, if you would, the communities that they were a part of were identifying them as the problem. you imagine that? You being identified as the problem, the reason for their hatred. It says there that they speak against you as evildoers. And people in their communities were actively speaking against them. They were calling them out. They were being targeted. Uh, Some of them would have been being put to death. I've talked to you about these things. Believers were being accused of rebelling within the Roman government against the government's authority. And some were being accused of being terrorists. They were being accused, they had been accused of burning Rome. You remember I talked to you about that. 
Christians were accused of being atheists because they didn't have idols the way the rest of the people around them did. Those who were following Christ were accused of being cannibals because they partook of the, of the Lord's Supper. Um, others were being accused of being immoral, talking about Christians now being accused of immorality because of their innocent love for one another. They were accused of doing societal damage because the believers taught that there was no difference between a slave and a slave owner, that they were both equally valuable before the Lord. And throughout history, persecution of Christians has existed. The persecution of those who follow Christ and love him supremely, as the song just talked about. And that kind of persecution, it comes in all kinds of forms. And, and it is in the world today in different places. And it may well be in our, life, our lifetimes that we'll see it personally. But God wanted these suffering saints to know that they were... They, he wanted them to know of the riches that they had in Christ. He wanted them to remember at a time in their lives when they felt like they were losing everything and maybe there was nothing to live for. He wanted them to be reminded that they had everything in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and that he wanted them to make Christ known to everybody within their sphere of influence. You know, I think I asked you earlier if you want to make Christ known. When you and I are not satisfied with him, when we find him to be not enough for us, um, there is really no testimony for us to give to the world around us. What testimony would we give to them that Christ is not enough? And that's where these believers were. They were on this threshold. They could live for self. They could try to hold on to their lives to save their own lives and lose them. Or they could give up their lives and they could have life. And they could magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, Peter talks to them about who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ. And actually, they are so rich and so wealthy it reminds them of these glorious truths that we're going to look at this morning. And then at the end, in verse number nine, he tells them that he wants them to make known the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ to the people around them. Let's look at the text. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse number four, and I'll read down through verse 10. He says in verse four of first Peter chapter two, he says, to whom coming is unto a living stone, that is Christ. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded ashamed, embarrassed. Verse 7, Unto you, therefore, which believe, he, Jesus Christ, is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, 
whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness unto his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Look back to verse 9, the latter part, the middle part of verse 9. He says there, he says that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's going to remind them in this passage of all that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truths are marvelous and they are deep. Far greater than any possessions that we could have in this uh, brief life of ours. Far more valuable, infinitely more valuable than what we can cram into our short lives that James calls a vapor. And he's telling these believers who feel like they have nowhere to go and that they are a part of nothing anymore, rejected of men, hated and despised. And he's going to talk to them. And he's going to say, you have so much in Christ and you need to be making, you need to be telling others of the glorious realities of being a Christian. And they need to be able to see it in your life. Let's pray together. Father, teach us now by your word. This is a deep passage, and yet there are glorious truths. So, Lord, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would, would uh, remove the veil that may be in front of our eyes to keep us from seeing these truths. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would make application to each one of us where we are um, in our lives today. And I pray that we'd be, encour we'd be encouraged, and I pray that we would, in this day and age, in 2021, that we would understand that our citizenship is in heaven and that we are Christ's and he is ours and that we have so much. And Lord, I pray in this wicked world that we would give testimony to others of what we have in Christ. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Are you a Christian? Would you call yourself a Christian, a little Christ, someone who has received Lord Jesus Christ? I think most of us would in this room this morning. Most of us would say, Pastor Ferguson, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then I would ask, do you know what you have in Christ? I can remember as a child, um, and I had been saved as a young boy, but I can remember as a child hearing a, a pastor preach about uh, the inheritance that we have. And uh, as a child, I remember hearing about this inheritance that we had as Christians, and of course, what I really cared about was my Nike shoes or a bicycle or something like that, uh, um, a, a toy to play with. And so when I, when I would hear about this inheritance that we have in Christ, it didn't mean all that much to me. I wasn't able to comprehend. I was, it wasn't something that I valued as much as I valued other things, you see. I think that's true, not only for children, but also for adults. Sometimes we put a greater value on the things of this world. We live for those things. We long for those things. We research those things. And, and research and, and purchasing and, 
and those sort of things. Those are part of life, okay? So it's not as though I'm saying not to live. But what do we value most? What do we value most? And that's really what these believers were being confronted with. Do you value your, your possessions more than Christ? Do you value your reputation more than the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you value your way of life more than Christ? Your dreams more than Christ? Your own lives, do you value them more than you value the Lord Jesus Christ and what you have in him? Uh, There's a great deal of maturity that's required, I think, to understand and to live in light of this spiritual reality. This is a, I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to trust what the Lord Jesus Christ has told me. So, am I thankful for what I have in Christ? Is it enough? Is he enough? While being rejected, and I want to answer this question this morning, how can Christians live so that unbelievers can see the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it possible? And I dare say it is. And Down through the ages, believers, while being put to death, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, were actually able to be a testimony to the goodness of God and the love of God, the salvation of God in their lives. So much so that sometimes the persecutors, the ones who were beating, and you remember this with the Philippian jailer, I think would be a biblical example of this. Um, Paul and Silas are kept in prison and an earthquake comes. You remember the earthquake frees the prisoners and the man's about to execute and take his own life by suicide. And Paul cries out, do thyself no harm. We are all here. And the response comes, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That would have been familiar to Paul because when his name was Saul, as a Pharisee, he stood there with the garments of those men, those angry men who hated Stephen, who were stoning Stephen. He stood there and watched them stone Stephen. But ultimately, Saul of Tarsus came to realize through the testimony and witness of those believers who loved Christ, to whom Christ was supreme, who they loved more than their own lives, it finally came to Saul of Tarsus, this is the Christ, this is love, this is what's worth living for, and he believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give a notice just from our passage in this text. I want to notice some of the reasons, some of the things we need to remember if we're going to be a witness in during times of trial and hurt and heartache. Number one, I notice that we need to live daily rejoicing that we are united with Christ. We need to live every day rejoicing that we are united with Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, To whom coming... Has unto a living stone. He's saying, You came to this living stone, disallowed. This stone was disallowed indeed of men. What does it mean to be disallowed? That means uh, it's not good enough. Mr. Jex, you work with wood. Sometimes you probably are going through your stockpile of lumber. You're looking to make something, a piece of furniture. Some pieces of wood are are worthy of that piece of furniture. Other pieces of wood are not worthy of that kind of furniture, and so it's disallowed, it's set aside for some, some other project of lesser value. Well, he, they're saying, he's saying here that Jesus Christ was disallowed indeed of men. 
but chosen of God and precious. Look at verse 5, the beginning part. Ye also as lively stones, living stones, are built up a spiritual house. And we'll stop there. But I notice, first of all, if we're going to live our lives in such a way so that unbelievers will see the wonders of Christ, so that other people will see the wonders and the glories of Christ, if they're going to see it in us, we need to live every day rejoicing in the unity that we have in Christ. Look at verse 4 again, the beginning part. It says, he's talking to these suffering believers, and he says to them, to whom coming? He's saying, you came to Christ. That's what he's saying in the passage. And it reminds me of this reality that we are united with Christ. We're united with him. We are one with him. What does it mean to come to Christ? Well, being a Christian is not about joining a community of religious people or taking on some new disciplines and rules and standards in our lives. Becoming a Christian is about coming to Christ and believing upon him to save our souls from death and hell. In Matthew chapter 11, and verse 28, Jesus said this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, coming to Christ not only did we come to him for salvation, but for a Christian, coming to Christ is a habit. It is a way of life. We do it every week when we gather together and we assemble like this. Many of us do it every day when we open up the word of God, the written word of God, and gaze into this law of liberty, this mirror that James refers to the word of God as. That's a a form of coming to Christ. It's habitual. It's as if we're drinking from that fountain that never shall run dry. Not only did it produce salvation in our lives from death and hell to come, but as we continue to drink from it, we partake of that life that is Christ. So to come to our Lord is to gaze at his glory and to, to be increasingly transformed by the truth that is him. So notice again in verse 4, He says this living stone, he says, to whom coming as unto a living stone. Is is it possible for there to be a living stone? (laughs) Normally when we think of a stone, we do not think of something that's living, do we? Not at all. We think of something that's dead. But this stone, this living stone is alive. This living stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. This living stone is described as In verse 4, the latter part is being chosen of God. You see it there at the end of verse 4, being chosen of God and precious. This is a precious stone. Look down to verse number 7. It says there, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same that is this living stone is made the head of the corner. And the word corner there means to set all the angles. He's talking about a cornerstone. This living stone is the cornerstone. Christ is identified as the cornerstone. The head of the corner means to set all the angles. The Holy Spirit is using the terms of a builder here in this passage. Now, some of you may be, and as I used to travel in evangelism, different church buildings, I can remember some churches would 
at an entrance or a certain point in the building, they would have a stone set into the brick. And it would be a, uh, it was with this passage in mind that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. In other words, for everything that's going to be done in, within this assembly is going to be determined by Jesus Christ. He is our cornerstone. We, in our world today of building today, we have all different kinds of technology and lasers going everywhere. And we can walk up, set our laser down on the tripod, and, and we can decide where uh, everything's going to be. We can use GPS nowadays to set the, where the foundation is going to be set for the building and things like that. But in uh, days uh, gone by, historically, they would use a cornerstone. And that cornerstone would be set and that cornerstone would be hewn, and they would find the perfect cornerstone, and that cornerstone would set, uh, really it would make sure the symmetry of the building was as it ought to be. The angles of the building would be as it should be, all because of that cornerstone. Everything was based off of the cornerstone. And so the rest of the building, the entire building, would have to coordinate with the cornerstone. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He's saying, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is a living stone. In the beginning of verse number five, he tells us that you are lively stones. In other words, you are part of this building. Christ is the cornerstone, but all of the angles for the building of which you are a part is being set by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is building us up into a building, a a grand edifice. I could call it a temple Uh, A spiritual building is what he refers to it in the text. And he's using this analogy to paint this picture. He is building you and me, and he's using Christ, whom we are connected to within this building, that we will be everything that he wants us to be in him. He's talking to these suffering believers. So the cornerstone would be fitted and worked and chosen because it would guarantee the strength of the building. It would guarantee the beauty of the rest of the building. So the question is, what is what building is being constructed in our text? Well, again, verse 5, the beginning part, he says, Ye also are, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. So he's not talking about a, a building project, a physical building project. I don't have a problem with the churches that put a cornerstone. They're not normally um, actually legitimate cornerstones, but it's... Uh, it's an illustration of this passage. Um, but he's talking about not the physical building. He's talking about the spiritual building. He's talking about you and me who are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this spiritual house? Well, this is a temple where God is glorified in Christ. This is a temple. Uh, this spiritual house is a temple where Christ resides, of whom he is a part and in which the Father is glorified by what Jesus Christ is accomplishing in your life and in mine, the rest of the building. You see, when we're connected to Christ, it is a beautiful edifice. When we go our own way, the edifice becomes a little rough. Maybe you've seen a house like that. You know, it's a popular thing today. Um, uh TV shows are made to, uh, with the idea of fixing up a house, right? Um, my parents, and I've told you a little bit about this, we did a fixer-upper when I was growing up. And um, there were sagging 
parts in the house and things like that. Uh, some of us, uh, it, the do-it-yourself, right? Right? You, you know, that's a popular DIY, do-it-yourself. And there are a lot of DIY houses around. And things are sagging because it was the first time they ever did it, and it was the last time they ever did it. And they never knew what they were doing exactly, right? And some churches, I suppose, are like that. A DIY church. You do it yourself. Well, that's not what, what Peter's saying. You're not out on your own, church members, suffering here in these places that he talked about at the beginning of chapter 1, where he talked about Cappadocia and Asia and Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia. You strangers, you're, you're aliens on this, on this, in this world. You're not all alone. You're connected to the cornerstone. The Lord Jesus Christ, this spiritual house is comprised of all who are connected to Christ by believing upon his name, all who are in living union with Jesus Christ. You see, we bear the marks in our lives. We bear his marks in our lives, his presence. We have it. His character comes out in our lives and all of our spiritual privileges come from Christ, what he is and who he is. We become. He is transforming us. And that's what Peter is saying. And so the question could be asked this morning, are you connected to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a part of this spiritual house that where Christ is the cornerstone? I'm not asking you, are you a church member? I'm not even asking you if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not asking you if you claim to be a Christian. I'm asking you if you are a Christian. Have you been born again? This living stone is connected to lively stones or other living stones. And it makes up this beautiful house, this beautiful spiritual place of worship that brings great glory to the Father. Now, the world hates the one whom God loves, and the world rejects the one that God accepts. Look at verse 4, the middle part. He says they're disallowed, speaking about this living stone, Jesus Christ, he says, disallowed indeed of men. Look down to verse 7, the middle part. He says, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, speaking about the religious leaders of, of Israel. They disallowed Jesus. He didn't fit into their religion. He didn't fit into their religion. Can you imagine that? How, how arrogant must those men have been? How arrogant is someone today who disallows the Lord Jesus Christ and says, you know what, Christ, you don't, Jesus, your word and you, your teachings don't fit into my life. They don't fit into my religion. We have higher standards than you. You don't meet the qualifications. Wow. So when we come to Christ, we are joined to Jesus Christ so that we live. And that's why Paul wrote, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. In this union and in this union, we are a temple and where our flesh ends, where we say no to ourselves, Christ begins. Make that a rule for your life. Remember that. 
where you, where my flesh ends, when I say no to my flesh, Christ begins. Do I want to serve him in my home with my children? Then I ought to follow Christ in how I interact with my children. Christ is being glorified. But where I say no to his leading and I respond to them in my flesh, that is me. That is all me. But where my flesh ends, Christ begins. Number two, I notice in the passage, not only do we need to live rejoicing that we are united with Christ, but secondly, we need to live daily in communion with Christ. We need to live every day in communion with Christ. Now think about these believers. They're suffering. And Peter is reminding them that you are united with Christ. This is who you are. You're a part of, you, you, you say, you, you, you say you're, you're brokenhearted because we're not a part of anything. We're outcasts of our society. Our, our neighbors that we used to be friends with are no longer our friends. They hate us. And these other people have been turned against us. And we've lost our businesses. We've lost our homes. We're, we're outcasts. We're being persecuted. We have nothing. And Peter's saying, yes, you have a great thing. You have Christ. You are united with him. You are a part of a spiritual building. Not only that, you have communion with Christ. Look at verse 5, the middle part. Verse 5, the middle part. He says that you are in holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Not only are you a part of this spiritual building, that is Christ. He is the cornerstone, and you are, you are members of this building, other living stones. But now, he says, you, are, you have communion, you have fellowship with God. Now, this is an amazing statement. Um, we have incredible privileges with God. We have amazing access to God. We have fellowship with God. In the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament system, God was not available to them the way he is to you and to me. People were told not to touch Mount Sinai or they would die. People were told not to touch the Ark of the Covenant or they would die. People were, weren't able to enter the Holy of Holies except on the Day of Atonement, and that was the high priest who could enter into the Holy of Holies, the Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in an effort to cover the sins of God's people. And then he would do it again every year. Every year. Just to cover. No one else had access into the Holy of Holies. But when Christ died on the cross, and you think of that day when Christ was lifted up and he died on that cross to take away our sins forever, the Bible records how the veil in the temple that veiled the sight of everyone from seeing what was inside the Holy of Holies, the veil into the Holy of Holies was rent from the top to the bottom. It's thought that that veil could be, could have been 30, would have been probably 30 feet wide and 30 feet tall. People have wondered and surmised how thick the, the material was on the veil. The Bible does not tell us how thick it was. Um, some Historians surmise that horses could be could have been yoked to it and pulled in different directions and it would not have ripped the veil. I don't know how thick it was, but that the veil would hide the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a cube. It was 30 feet wide and 30 feet deep and 30 feet tall. And inside the Holy of Holies, amongst other things, there were two cherubims. And the Bible 
uh, in the Old Testament gives us some dimensions. These cherubims, I think, were um, about 15 feet tall with wings on each side that were 15 feet in length each within the Holy of Holies. And the, and the veil would have veiled anybody from being able to see into the Holy of Holies to see these artifacts and decorations that were there. And so that veil was 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 torn in half from top to top to bottom. And everybody who receives Christ as their Savior, now we have complete access into the very presence of God by the veil that is by the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 5, the middle part, he says, you are in holy priesthood. Now only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies before. There was only one of him. One man who would represent all men would enter into the Holy of Holies. But now we are, God calls us priests. Now he's talking to these believers who in their minds, I really think are saying, what's the point? What is the point of suffering? What is the point of following the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the point of all this? Is it worth it? And Peter is reminding them by the Holy Spirit, he's reminding them of what they have in Christ. You are an holy priesthood. This is not a small thing. You have the privilege to enter into the presence of Almighty God. In Hebrews 10 and verse 19, the Bible says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness, liberty, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. We are a holy priesthood. If you're a child of God, you're a holy, you're part of a holy priesthood. Now, what does this mean? Well, we have access to God through Christ. We have access to God all the time. All the time. I can enter into the holiest at any moment. I mean, they used to put bells on the on the robe of the high priest in case he died, was struck dead while he was in the Holy of Holies. And, they might, and it is said that they would tie a rope to his ankle so that they could drag his dead body out. You and I have the privilege of entering into the holiest any day, any night, as many times as we want. This is not a small thing. Our access to God is immediate. Christ Christ lives inside of us by his spirit. And as priests, we are chosen of God. We are chosen of God. He has cleansed us from our sinfulness. He, He has prepared us to fulfill our responsibilities by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the spirit, he has gifted us with spiritual gifts. He is anointed. We've been anointed by the Spirit of God for service. We've been, we're being trained by the Word of God. We walk with God and have communion and fellowship with Him. Look at verse 5, the latter part again. He says that as in holy priesthood, we are able to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. My question is, what are these spiritual sacrifices? Should Should we be burning incense in our homes? Should we be slaying animals? What are these spiritual sacrifices that as priests 
we have the privilege of offering up to God. And notice also, not only are these spiritual sacrifices, but they are acceptable to God. Now, he's saying a couple of things to these believers. You, you're talking about all the things you can't do. But you can actually offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. You can access him at any time. And more than that, the spiritual sacrifices that you offer up to God are, and this is amazing to me, they are acceptable. They are acceptable. You remember Cain and Abel? Abel's sacrifice was acceptable or unacceptable? Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable. Uh, throughout, throughout the word of God, we find people trying to offer up praise and uh, sacrifices to God, and oftentimes they are unacceptable. But here, Peter is telling these believers, he's saying these sacrifices, these spiritual sacrifices that you're able to offer are acceptable to God. I think we underestimate how acceptable our humble service to God actually is. Do you ever feel like you cannot please him? I believe with all of my heart that is wrong thinking. Because Christ has saved you. He gives you a different designation. No longer a sinner. He calls you a saint. He, has, he calls you justified. He has declared you to be righteous. You and I still know what our, our flesh is like in the sinfulness of our flesh, but he has overcome our flesh. We have been forgiven of all of our sins, all the flesh, fleshly sins that we will ever commit in our lives. We've been forgiven of, and we have been given the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why, as the great high priest can access the Father's throne, so too can his priest, you and I, access the Father's throne, because we have been made the righteousness of God in him. This is mind-blowing. And so to these suffering believers in these places under the Roman Empire, yes, you are suffering. Yes, you are rejected of men. But you are accepted of God. You are accepted of God. And so the sinful men reject you. And so the sinful governments reject you. So be it. You are accepted of God. And we tend to think of ourselves as far less than we ought to be. And our flesh is far less. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 7, a wretched man that I am. Okay, he talked about that. But we undervalue what Christ is doing in us and what he has done. What are some of the spiritual sacrifices that we can offer to God? I want to make this clear so nobody goes home and... and uh, uh, you know, a little fluffy. We, we want little fluffy to live on, okay? So be kind to your animals. What kind of sacrifices can we offer to the Lord? Well, we can offer him our, our bodies, all that we are. Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice unto the Lord. A living sacrifice. Now we can offer the sacrifice of prayer. In, in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, the Bible talks about the prayer of all the saints upon the golden altar. Think about that. As a sacrifice. The prayer of all the saints. The, the, our praise to God 
is a sacrifice. God sees it as a sacrifice, an offering of praise to him. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the Bible says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. He calls it a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Are you a thankful person? You find yourself giving thanks to God. That is a sacrifice of praise with our lips to God. Do you realize that? I can wake up and I can have a lot of things to do or, or I can face some things and the situation is bad. But I, as, as a child of God, as a, uh, a part of the whole, this holy priesthood, I can say, God, thank you for what you are doing in my life. And God receives that as a sacrifice of praise from me to him. I, I, I think we underestimate how we can what sacrifices and offerings we can bring to him. Giving to others is a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13 verse 16 says, but to do, but to do good and to communicate. And that has the idea of giving. Forget not, he says, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible teaches that when we walk in love, as Christ walked in love, when he gave himself for us, it is an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. So next time God prompts you to give to someone, give. And give with the mindset of this is a sacrifice to God. You see, leading someone to Christ is an offering to God. Romans 15 verse 16 speaks of that. Does God deserve more than we can offer him? Yes or no? Does, he deserve, does God deserve more than what I, can, what I have to offer him? Yes. Yes, of course he does. He deserves more. He is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. Much more than what little things I might be able to bring to him. But Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, by him, our sacrifices are acceptable to the Father. What are some of the recent sacrifices that you have offered to him? Uh, sacrifices that you have offered that, that the Father has accepted. You know, right now you're literally offering your, your bodies. You've, you've broken off from maybe other things that you could be doing. You could be watching a, a game show at home, or you could be doing some chores around the house. It's a beautiful day, right? Later this summer, it'll be hot outside, and the boat, if you have a boat, will be calling your name. There are other things that you'll be able to do. But you are here. You are here. You're offering him your bodies and your minds as you take in the word of God, and you sit and you give your thoughts and attentions to his, to his word. This very morning, we have offered praise to God as we listen to Pastor Tolman and, and Chris Pagan sing a song of praise to the Lord and really consecration to him. We gave our thoughts and our, our full attention to that. And to a degree, that is a sacrifice. You, you've offered up yourself to the Lord. Lord, I want you to speak to me. I, I want to push out all of the other cares that are on my mind and have have taken my attention throughout this week. And right now, I just want to worship you and I want to dwell on your greatness and your goodness and who you are. That is not worldly. 
that is very spiritual. We've sung hymns with our lips and from our hearts. We've offered God the response of our hearts in prayer. We're expressing our love to Christ as we fellowship with his body. We've given an offering to Christ. Do, do you see? You see, we can offer sacrifices of praise to God. And whenever we follow Christ and say no to our wicked, ungodly flesh, it is, it is a wonderful spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God by Christ Jesus, it says in our passage. So do you, do you desire to offer praise and sacrifice to God? It may not all be, it may not be everything that we think it should be, but surely, and surely it is not all that God deserves. So often our sacrifices fall short of all that we might want them to be, but they are still acceptable to God. Why? Because Christ is acceptable to God. That is why. Christ is acceptable to God. And, and Christ lives in you if you're a child of God. And so it is because Christ is in you that our sacrifices are acceptable to God. In a very real sense, it is Christ who is offering the sacrifices through us. And so let us enter boldly into this holiest place, the presence of Almighty God, and let us present to him acceptable sacrifices, and not just on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, but each, each day throughout the week, let us offer up praise to his name, and let us seek to win people to Christ as a sacrifice and offering to the Lord. There's a few other thoughts, and I'll touch on them briefly, and we'll be done. Look at verse 6. As we talk about how can we as believers live so that unbelievers see Christ, I notice thirdly, we need to live daily enjoying the security that we have in Christ. We need to enjoy the security that we have in Christ. Now, this is in contrast to the lack of security these believers had. Look in verse 6. He says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a cheap cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. The word confounded means disappointed or embarrassed or ashamed. And he's saying here, as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16, that anyone who trusts in the Lord will not be ashamed, will not be embarrassed, will not be disappointed. Have you ever purchased something only to be very disappointed in what you purchased? Have you ever had buyer's regret like, you got it, and it just was not what you thought it was going to be. Or, or have you ever believed in a product only to be embarrassed and think, ah, oh, I can't believe I went for that. You know, I thought it, I thought it was going to fix everything, and it didn't. Um, or have you ever made a decision that brought you shame and regret? Okay, I've done all of those things, I think. Okay, um, there are different religions around the world. People give of themselves. Um, but you know what? There's going to come a day, though they were sincere in their religion, where it will be nothing but a disappointment. Everything they have given, every sacrifice they have made, will be for nothing. And Peter is saying to these believers, following the Lord Jesus Christ, having believed upon him, you will never regret. You will never be disappointed. There, there are so many things in this world that, that disappoint ourselves. We probably disappoint ourselves more than anything else disappoints us. Or, or the things that we have purchased, 
the things that we live for, they fade away. They go out of style. Cindy and I are trying to do, we're going to do some work on the house. And, and uh, so she's picking out things. And, and the, the question comes up. She says, well, I want to pick something that lasts. Okay, that's fine. And I want to do that too. But, you know, eventually, no matter what we pick, it's not going to be in style. We should just keep the orange countertops. They're going to come back into style really quick, I'm sure. You know, we, we do have orange countertops, by the way. See, Christ will never disappoint. He brings all of his sons to glory. He knows all of his sheep by name. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. He has a purpose for our lives, and there is nothing that will alter that purpose. He will bring it to pass. He is doing his will. And for those of us who have believed upon his name, he will not disappoint. And we can be secure in that. In verses 7 and 8, he tells us to live daily having a great love and affection for Christ. Live every day having a great love and affection for Christ. Look at this amazing contrast in these verses. In verse 7, he says, Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. At the beginning of verse 7, he tells these believers, unto you therefore which believe, he is, what? Is precious. Jesus Christ is precious. He is valuable He is so precious. We love him. How do you know if someone is saved? I asked one of my children the other day, I said, do you love, do you love the Lord? We were just talking. They weren't in trouble. We were just talking. I said, do you love the Lord? How do you know if someone is saved? You know if they are saved or not by whether or not they love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you know. Do you love him? In John 8, Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. God's children love Christ, even when we can't see him physically. Peter talked about this back in chapter 1 and verse 8, where he said, whom having not seen ye love. You haven't seen him, but you love him anyway. In John 21, Jesus repeatedly asked Peter, what? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And what, Christ, what does he want from Peter? He wants his love. Love me. A true believer loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a distinction between a true Christian and a person who claims to be saved, or a person who is very religious, but doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians love Christ. He is precious, the Bible says there in verse 7. That means to be esteemed highly, to the highest degree. We read about him, we read about Jesus. Why? Because we want to know him better. We sing his praises because we love him. We hope in him because we trust him. Uh, We desire to be closer to him because we adore him. We love him. And there are many things in this world that I enjoy. There are even people that I love dearly. But there is only one Christ. And I love him. 
and I worship Him, and I adore Him. In verse 9, he ends with this final thought. Live daily, enjoying the wonderful blessings and privileges in Christ. Live daily, enjoying the wonderful blessings and privileges in Christ. Look at verse 9, the beginning part. He says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. These people, they're these poor people, suffering the loss of everything. And, and the Holy Spirit tells them, this is what you have. This is who you are. You say you have no country. I tell you, you are a chosen nation. I, I, I tell you, you're a chosen generation. You're a chosen offspring, kin. God has chosen you. God chose Israel and God has chosen the church. This, this, this chosen generation transcends all earthly ethnicity. The Fergusons, where do you think the Fergusons come from by the name? Um, not Germany. Somewhere probably in the British Isles. My ancestors probably wore kilts and played bagpipes and had stone throwing competitions. You know, important things. So that's probably where I come from, but that's not who I am. I love the United States of America, but you know, this country is only passing. Do you know that? I love it dearly. My heart has grieved for our nation, but this is a passing nation. This is a passing country. And as children of God, as believers, we are a part of something. There is only one race. Maybe I could say there is two. There are the children of the devil and there are the children of God. And this transcends all earthly ethnicities. And there are only one, there's only one Christian race and all who believe upon Jesus Christ are part of it. He says your royal priesthoods, not just priests, but royal priests, this spiritual house, this royal temple for the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of royal priests and living stones who reign with Christ. He says you're a holy nation. Christians are a nation of people who have been forgiven and declared holy because Jesus paid the price for sin and he has given us his righteousness. Galatians 3, he says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. You're a holy nation, the children of God. And he says, finally, you're a peculiar people. It refers to a unique possession that has been purchased. You were so loved by God that he gave his only son to purchase you. To make you a part of this holy nation. And the implication is that we are greatly valued of God. All oh, these poor people. Feeling unloved, unwanted, hated, cast out, a part of nothing. And Peter says, you need to remember who you are. All of this is temporal. But what you're a part of is eternal. 
And he says, I want you to remember all of these things and look at verse nine. And we'll close with this at the end of verse nine. He says this, that ye should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Show forth the praises of him. Talk about what you have in Christ to people in our nation who are beside themselves with the idea of losing everything or overcome with fear or overcome with hatred. We can, we can tell them the good news that being born again of the Lord Jesus Christ results in salvation and great riches and peace that passeth all understanding. Why? Because of what we have in Christ and who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why has God poured out all of these wonderful blessings on us? So that we can tell others of God's salvation and live it out in front of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning in our hearts. Some challenging thoughts. Father, I pray as we leave this place that we would go forth with joy in our hearts. Not sorrow, not grief, but because we are a part of your family. We are part of your nation and you will set up your kingdom. And Lord, help us, I pray, to live with these truths, these rock solid, eternal, never changing truths in our hearts. In a time, in a world where things continually change, you change not. In your family, Father, we are a part of it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.